It's good to be with you, church. For those of you that are new or visiting, welcome. My name is Halim Sa. I serve as one of the pastors and elders here at the Stone. We're continuing our study in the book of Exodus. We're in the fifth week of our study in Exodus. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 4 today. Exodus is a long book, and so we're going to be in it for a while. But very simply, what is the book of Exodus all about? What is it all about? I think the simplest way that you can say it is that the book of Exodus is about salvation. It's about salvation. I think more than anything else, the book of Exodus exists to teach us about our salvation. The book of Exodus is a story about God's people living in the devastation of the slavery and bondage of Egypt and how God comes and fulfills his promise to rescue them and give them salvation. And Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us that this story that happened 4,000 years ago was written down for us, for you and I. It was written down for us as an example for us, as a parallel to our lives of how God rescues us and gives us salvation, rescues us from the bondage of, and slavery of sin and death, just as God saved the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt. And so the book of Exodus is about salvation. It's about the salvation of the Israelites back then. It's about our salvation today. And what we're going to see today about this great salvation is that this is a great salvation that God offers us and it's a salvation that is to be declared. It is a great salvation that is to be declared. What we're going to see in Exodus 4 is that God has this great plan to save the Israelites from the bondage in Egypt, and he wants this plan declared. He wants Moses to go down to his people and declare this great plan of salvation that God is going to save them. And so it is with us. God has a plan to save people from save people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and he wants us to declare this plan. We call it the gospel of Jesus. He wants us to declare this gospel to people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. He wants us to share the gospel with our neighbors, with our friends, coworkers, and family members. He wants us to share it, declare it using our words. You see, God calls us to display and make known the gospel both by Word and deed, by declaration and demonstration. But the great temptation that you and I face as God's people is that we go and demonstrate the gospel with our actions, but not declare the gospel with our words. See, many of us, you're out there and you're genuinely being kind and compassionate to your neighbors, to your coworkers, you're demonstrating the gospel to them. Many of you, when your family wrongs you, when your roommate or friend wrongs you, you're forgiving them, you're demonstrating the gospel to them. But let me ask you, church, how is the declaration of the gospel going? When is the last time you shared the gospel using your words with somebody? I know for me, demonstrating the gospel, it just comes more easily than sitting down with somebody, having a one-on-one conversation where I'm sharing the gospel with them with my words. And because it's so difficult, we find ourselves many times not declaring. And when we find ourselves not declaring, we often have excuses. I know I do. 
And these excuses are nothing new. In Exodus chapter 4, what we're going to see is that Moses has all the same excuses that you and I have. These are old excuses. And when God told him to go and declare this great salvation, he has all these same excuses. And so let's go to Exodus. And as we see God address Moses' excuses, his objections, let's have him deal with our excuses and objections as well. First of all, let's read God's command in chapter 3 to Moses. God speaking to Moses through the burning bush. Exodus 3.16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt, and they will listen to your voice. And here's Moses' response, Exodus 4 and 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. And so, what's Moses' excuse here? He says, They will not believe me or listen to me. But what's the problem with that excuse? The problem is God has just told Moses in Exodus 3.18 that they will listen to your voice. And so from the very beginning, we see here in Moses' excuse, we see where our doubts and our objections are rooted. It's rooted in not believing God. It's rooted in not believing God. It's saying, God, I know that you said you're going to save people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, but my dad, my dad, He's just not going to believe me. But my neighbor, I just think they're too far gone. Our excuse for not sharing the gospel with people is rooted in not believing God and thinking that we have a better assessment of how salvation works. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and so he's going to save who he's going to save, right? But we can be sure of this, that no one's going to be saved apart from them hearing the gospel. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. That's how faith is produced. That's how faith is birthed in people. When God's word, the gospel is spoken to them, but we just don't believe it. We just don't believe it. We don't believe that God's power, God's word has the power to break through and save some people. And so Moses doubts and we doubt, but instead of rebuking Moses for his doubts, instead of saying, Moses, didn't I just tell you that they're going to listen? Instead of rebuking, God is patient with him, and he tells him that he's going to do three signs through him so that they will believe. Exodus 4.2. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Okay, so what's the first sign? The first sign is that he's going to turn Moses' staff into a serpent. Well, what's God showing Moses through this first sign. It's not just an arbitrary thing. God's not sitting up there going, I need a sign. I know, stick into a serpent. It's not an arbitrary thing. He's doing something for the heart of Moses. What's he doing? God asks Moses, what is that in your hand? And Moses answers, a staff. God wants Moses to say it. 
He wants Moses to see that it's just his staff, just an ordinary staff that he's probably carried around for the last 40 years, that it's just an ordinary stick. It's not some secret voodoo stick. It's not some mighty powerful thing that unbeknownst to Moses has been forged in the mountains of Mordor. It's just regular piece of stick, dead piece of wood. And he says to throw this ordinary dead piece of wood on the ground and it turns into a serpent. And this serpent, if you're familiar with the story, will swallow up the serpents made, that, made by the Egyptian magicians. What God is saying to Moses is, Moses, I can take the most ordinary and everyday thing and use it for my glory to swallow up the powers of Egypt. And if I can do that using an ordinary piece of stick, I can surely use you. And so maybe that's your fear. Maybe you're thinking, okay, I could go and share the gospel with somebody, but why in the world would they believe me? I'm not anybody special. I'm just so ordinary. But what God is saying is that he can take the most ordinary, normal people like you and me and use us for extraordinary supernatural purposes. That he uses his words spoken through us to overpower any unbelief, any unbelief. He loves to call the weak to himself and display his power through us. That's what he does. All throughout the Bible, you look at all the people that he calls and uses, he always calls the weak to himself so that his power would be displayed. Let's look at the second sign. Exodus 4, 6. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when, it, when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. The second sign God enabled Moses to perform was to turn a perfectly healthy hand, leprous, and then restore the leprous hand back to health. Leprosy was widespread in Egypt. It was well known. It was highly contagious. It was completely incurable. Well, what is God doing for Moses here? How did this particular sign address Moses' excuse that the people will not believe? What God was teaching Moses here was that in an instant, by God's power, he can take that which has the greatest strength the greatest vigor, and immediately wither it away at once, right? And vice versa, he can take that which is sick and in peril and immediately give it strength and vigor. So do you see another reason why Moses could have had a hard time believing that salvation was possible because he saw in Egypt such power, such strength and vigor. He couldn't imagine in his mind how it was going to go down, that he was just going to go to the ruler of the world's superpower at the time and just demand that he let all his slaves go. And on the other hand, he saw in Egypt such weakness, right? Such downtrodden people, such a broken-hearted people. How in the world were they going to rise up and go against this Pharaoh? Just as Moses couldn't imagine, our doubts and excuses for not sharing the gospel is rooted in our inability to imagine. You look at somebody who apparently has everything. 
They live in Westlake. They have the perfect career. They make lots of money. But it's not just that. They not only make lots of money, they give lots of money. They're charitable. They're generous. They have this picture-perfect family. And you have a hard time imagining how in the world is this person going to believe that their life is meaningless and pointless apart from Jesus? How in the world is this person going to believe that they have a need? They have a great need of forgiveness from Jesus. Or on the other hand, you look at someone and, and they look like someone who has way too much need, right? You think they're too far gone. They're as far away from Jesus as they can be. They're indulgent in their sins. They're constantly talking about how they hate God and they want nothing to do with God. And so do you see the problem here? In our minds, who can be saved? Maybe just the Goldilocks sinners sinning just enough, not too much, not too little, just, just enough, and then they could be saved. What God is showing Moses and what God is showing us is that in an instant, by the power of his word, he could take the greatest king and make him kneel, and he could make the poorest beggar make him stand in an instant by the power of his word that God is telling us that no one is too far gone for him to save. God is able to save anybody, anybody, by the power of his word. If we would declare it, if we would speak it, it's powerful enough to break through any circumstance. Third sign, verse 9. And if they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. The third sign is that he will turn the Nile into blood. And so it's very much related to the strength of Egypt excuse. The Nile represented Egypt's lifeline, a chief part of its prosperity was due to the Nile. And what God is saying is that immediately he can take Egypt's greatest advantage and turn it into its peril. But beyond that, more than that, what I want us to take away from this, God's third sign, is his patience. Is his patience. When it comes to God commanding us to do something, we are in no position to make excuses or objections, right? He's God. And he owes us no explanations in trying to get us to obey. If anybody had the right to simply say, do this, why? Because I said so. It, it would be God, right? But he doesn't do it that way. That's not how he deals with us. He's patient with us. If he would have given Moses one sign, that would have been enough. If he would have given Moses two signs, that would have been more than generous, more than kind. But the fact that he gives Moses three signs shows us that his patience towards us is overwhelming. That his kindness towards us, that his grace towards us is beyond our ability to comprehend. That's how he deals with us when we give God excuses for not obeying him. But what is Moses' response to God's overwhelming patience? Well, we should read next, Moses repented in dust and ashes. He said, yes, Lord, I will go obey. That's what we should read. But instead we read in verse 10, but Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. There's been much speculation about what this is all about. There's been suggestions that Moses had a speech impediment, that he had a stutter, or other suggestions that this is expressing the loss of his Egyptian linguistics. 
After all, he's been living for 40 years away from Egypt and Midian, right? Very little, probably none, no opportunities to speak Egyptian. And so this seems like a distinct, separate excuse. But if you think about it, all these excuses, they just start to run together. Back in Exodus 3, he already gave a similar kind of excuse. Verse 10, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I, Lord, to do such an important thing? Little old me, God, but I'm so ordinary, they will not believe me. We just saw that earlier in chapter 4. And now he says, God, have you forgotten about my speech problem? Do you see the repetitive nature of these excuses expressed over and over again, just slightly in different ways? And it's the same with us. These types of excuses are our go-to excuses when it comes to God commanding us to do something weighty, when it comes to God commanding us to do something that will make us uncomfortable. And why is this our go-to excuse? It's our go-to excuse because it has the appearance of humility. Moses is using his own insignificance, his own disability to excuse himself from the task that God was urging him to do. But is it really humility? Look more deeply at what Moses is saying. Who am I, Lord, to do such a thing? But I'm so ordinary, they're not going to believe me. And God, have you forgotten, forgotten about my speech problem? See, at the center of Moses' excuse and objections is me, me, me. He's not being humble. He's being really prideful. After all, Moses didn't seem to have a speech problem when he's arguing with God, right? And it's disheartening to see how quickly Moses has shifted away from having an awestruck, burning bush in the midst of God's presence, taking off his shoes, covering his face kind of experience with God, to now what? Just arguing against him. And it's the same way with us. We have these awestruck kinds of moments with God, burning bush kind of moments with God. Maybe it's Sunday worship when we're just singing, when we're praising God. We feel like we're in his presence. We sense his greatness, right? And then this God commands us to do something. Maybe it's in, during the sermon time. We see in his word, God tell us to obey something, do something, stop doing something. And we don't like it. And how quickly we shift away from being awestruck by this great God to now just arguing with him. And we offer him excuses. And maybe our excuses sound humble, just like Moses. But it's not humility. It's prideful self-centeredness. When we have similar excuses like, well, I'm just not a people person. I get really terrified to share the gospel with people. Well, that may sound humble, but what we're really saying is it's going to require work. It's going to require that I step out of my comfort. And that person, nor God's command, is important enough for me to do so. When we give excuses like, I just don't have the spiritual gift of evangelism, right? I just don't have the spiritual gift of evangelism. That may sound humble, but what we're saying is, God, if you really wanted me to do this, you should have made me really good at it. And since you didn't, I'm just not going to do it. When we offer God excuses like, 
I just don't know what to say. I just don't know how to share the gospel. Well, that may sound humble, but what we're really saying is, God, I have better things to do than study the Bible and learn what to say. So our humble excuses, if you dig down deep, is really tied to arrogance and pride. So how does God respond to our prideful excuses disguised as humility? Verse 11, then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Notice, God doesn't evaluate Moses' speaking ability at all. He doesn't try to convince Moses, oh no, Moses, you're not that bad, you're actually a great speaker. Nor does he admit that Moses is right. He doesn't say, you know, you're right, Moses, you're actually a terrible speaker. What was I thinking? (laughs) He doesn't indulge our self-centeredness. He's saying, look, you think this thing's about you, but it's not. You think this is about what you can do, what you can't do. No, this is about me. I'm the one who gives people the ability to speak. I'm the one who makes people mute. And so whatever ability I gave you or disability I gave you, it's for the purpose of glorifying me. It's about me. And so God doesn't indulge our self-centered excuses, but instead he points us to the only thing that mattered. Verse 12, now therefore go. And I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. God answered Moses by pointing Moses back to God. What was Moses doing? Looking at himself. Me, me, me. Right? He's turning Moses back to God. And he's saying, now therefore go. I will be with you. I will help you. I will teach you what to say. Like Moses, we're prone to place far too much emphasis and importance on who we are. What we can do what we can't do, and not nearly enough emphasis on the fact that if God commands us to go do something, he promises to be with us, to enable us and empower us to accomplish exactly what he's calling us to do. Look at Matthew 28, the Great Commission. He sends, Jesus sends us out in exactly the same way. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm in charge here. He's saying, who has made man's mouth? That's what he's saying. He's saying he determines and rules everything. Go, therefore, because he's in charge. Go, therefore, preach the gospel, declare this great salvation. Everything that I commanded you, go and teach them, right? Use your words. And lastly, what should take away all excuses and objections? And behold, I am with you always. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Same thing, right? I will be with you. If God is for us, who can be against us? God is saying to us, that promise, I will be with you, should destroy all excuses, all objections you and I ever have in not sharing the gospel with people. God's promise, I will be with you. Okay, so that should be that, right? If God giving Moses three signs didn't resolve Moses' excuse, then surely now God's saying, I will be with you, right, should be enough to get Moses to obey. Let's read Moses' response, verse 13. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. (laughs) So there it finally is. Excuse 
after excuse after excuse Moses offered to God, to which God patiently offered explanations after encouragements, after promises. And so when finally all of Moses' excuses were exhausted, his true motivation was exposed in all of its dreadful depravity. Oh, Lord, please send someone else to do it. There's no more excuses now, just an objection, just a flat-out refusal and rejection of God's call on his life. And I think in a very sober way, it reveals to us why we don't obey, why we don't share the gospel with people. Initially, if asked why, we have excuses. We have excuses that sound humble even. But if you dig down deep, get down to the very bottom of those excuses, I think we'll find something so utterly ugly and depraved about ourselves that ultimately you and I don't obey God because we just don't want to. That's at the bottom of our hearts. That's our ultimate motivation. God commands us to do something. Ultimately, why don't we do it? We just don't want to. It's as simple and as unacceptable as that. And so we saw that God's response to our excuses were gentle and patient explanations, encouragements, promises. Well, what's God's response going to be to us if we flat out reject his will in our lives? Verse 14. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. And so what's God's response? It says that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. But what ought to be so shocking to us here is not that God got angry, but that God got angry right here and not 10 excuses ago, right? What this is showing us is that God is slow to anger, but even in his anger, even when he finally does get angry, what does he do? He remembers mercy. In his anger, he remembers mercy. He provides Aaron to go with Moses to speak for him. And what does he say? Continuing in verse 15. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. What's he doing? He's saying, I will be with your mouth. God is still speaking to Moses. He's not going to bypass him. Moses gave God the greatest insult a man could ever give God when God says to him, I will be with you. Moses said, can you do it some other way? Send someone else. I don't want to. But what's God's response to such an insult? His response is grace. Verse 16. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be with your mouth, and you shall be as God to him, and take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. He says to Moses, take up the staff and go and do all the signs that I told you to do. Well, what's God doing here? What's he saying? He's being a good parent. He's being a good father, right? Parents in the room, you know, if you yielded every time your kid said no to you, you would be a terrible parent. He's not yielding to Moses' refusal. He's saying, Moses, in your foolishness, in your disobedience, in your distrust, in your unbelief, in your pride, in your faithlessness, you said to me, the creator of the universe, God, I don't want to. Send someone else. But do you know who I'm going to send? I'm going to send you. 
I'm still going to send you. I'm going to fulfill through you all of my promises to my people. Moses, what you have to know about me is this, that your will for your life will never be trumped or thwarted by your sinfulness. See, as God's people, that should be the source of greatest comfort for us. Whatever God's will is for our lives, it will not be trumped. It will not be thwarted because of our sinfulness, because of our disobedience, because of our unbelief. God is saying, I will remain faithful to you even when you're faithless against me. Though you're prone to wonder, I will keep you. I will not let you go. When Moses offered God excuses, God gave him explanations. When Moses offered to God more excuses, God gave him encouragements and promises. When Moses no longer offered excuses, but instead just flat out rejected God's will, God got angry, but even in his anger, he remembered mercy and said to Moses, Moses, it doesn't work like that. I will not let you go. You are mine. And guess what Moses' response is to this? What happened next? Moses finally went. Moses finally went. Moses finally embraced God's call upon his life. Moses finally obeyed. In telling Moses to go and declare this great salvation, he was showing Moses how this salvation works. Do you guys see this? In telling Moses to go and declare this great salvation, he was showing Moses how this great salvation works. What God is saying is that this gospel that he's offering us is not do this and I will bless you. If you obey, if you don't obey, I will crush you. That's not the gospel. But the gospel that he's offering us is even when you don't obey, even when you reject, even when you flat out refuse him, I will run after you. I will make you mine. Even in your faithlessness, your faithlessness will not thwart my faithfulness. I will not let you go. That's the gospel. Back in college, I got to experience this truth in a powerful way. Um, my roommates, some of my roommates and friends and I, one night we were having a Bible study. And after the Bible study, one of the guys broke out his guitar and we were doing some praise and worship, and we were singing. We talk about this kind of awestruck kind of moment. I was having that kind of moment with God. I felt like I was in his presence, and I felt the greatness of who he is, the greatness of the gospel and Jesus, and just overwhelmed by all of this. I, I started praying, God, I will do whatever you tell me to do. I'll go wherever you tell me to go. You want me to go to the Middle East? You want me to go to China, Africa? I will go. I'll tell everyone about Jesus, right? I was having this moment, and then in that moment, I felt like God was telling me, okay, I want you to go downstairs and tell your neighbors about Jesus. <laughs> I was like, God, the neighbors that are having a party right now? Um, so I, I try to ignore it at first. I try to just, no, that's not God. I try to just keep on singing, God, I'll go anywhere for you, and... And, um, but it wasn't working, right? Obviously, I was telling God I would go anywhere for him, but refusing to go downstairs. And, and so I tried to then offer him excuses. God, they're all drunk by now. They're not going to listen to me. They're not going to know what I'm saying. But he just would not let me go. And then I said, okay, fine, God, I'll go tomorrow. 
but he wasn't putting up with my compromises. He, I just couldn't shake him. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, just overwhelming sense of, I want you to go do this. I couldn't shake it. Finally, I got up in the middle of the song. I said, guys, I feel like God's calling me to go downstairs and share the gospel. I didn't want to go by myself. And so I said, Kevin, Kevin, our lead pastor, he was there. That's how long we've known each other. I said, Kevin, come with me. So we go downstairs and I knock on the door. And one of the guys opens the door with a beer in his hand, just kind of looking wasted, loud music, about 20 other people in the room. And I didn't know what to say. So I just said, hey, I'm your neighbor from upstairs. We're having a Bible study. And I felt like God was telling me to come tell you about Jesus. (laughs) And you know, I'm like, please shut the door in my face, please. But he says to me, all right, man, come on in. And he turns off the music, and we're sitting around in a big circle in his living room, and Kevin and I shared the gospel with them, and that was that. We shared the gospel, and we said, all right, see you later, and (laughs) went back home, and nothing really happened. I thought God was just testing my obedience and, you know, just went to bed, and then in the middle of the night, just a banging on my door. It's about 4 a.m. I go to open the door, and it's one of the guys from downstairs, and he's just weeping. And he says, I've been running away from God, man. He says, ever since I came to college, I've been running away from him. And you came and told us about Jesus, and I just can't get this Jesus out of my mind. And so will you please tell me more about Jesus? And so there on the patio, I shared more of Jesus with him, and he trusted Jesus that night. And in the weeks to come, His girlfriend trusted Jesus, and the rest of the roommates trusted Jesus. And that night, going back to bed, so exhausted, I felt so loved by God. I felt so loved by God that he wouldn't put up with my excuses. That no matter how much I tried to refuse him, he didn't refuse me. No matter how much I tried to reject him, he didn't reject me. He kept on me until I surrendered, and he allowed me to experience something I'll never forget for the rest of my life. And so what is this text, this message all about? Is it about God saying, go share the gospel because I told you to? No, it's not about that. If you look at Moses' life, after he fully embraced God's call on his life, after he obeyed God, do you know what it says happened to him? Exodus chapter 33 says, and God spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend says that God spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Do you see what happened here? He went from having an all-only kind of experience with God to now knowing him face to face. He went from having a burning bush kind of experience with God to now God speaking with him face to face. And so who is God calling you to share the gospel with? Here's the hard part, right? Who is God calling you to share the gospel with? One of your friends, one of your family members, your roommate, coworker, who is it? Give in to him. Give in to him. Surrender to him. Embrace his call upon your life. And I promise you, when you do, when you do, you will know God in ways you've never known him before. Let's pray together. Father, Paul said, 
I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Lord, Lord, though we have been saved by this great power of the gospel, many times with our actions, with our mouths, Lord, we live as though if we're ashamed of it. Father, we ask that even now you would show us the greatness of who you are, this power of the gospel in such a way that we will not be ashamed. Father, just like the apostles said, persecutions may come, bring whatever persecution. Though you may hurt me, though sufferings may come, I just cannot stop speaking of what I have seen, what I have heard. Let that be our story. Prophet Jeremiah said, when you put your words in him, it was like fire pent up in his bones. Father, let the power of the gospel be that way to us. Father, let us surrender to you. Let us embrace your call upon our lives. Make us willing. If we are not willing, make us willing. That's how we were saved. We wanted nothing to do with you, and yet you pursued us and came after us and saved us. And so make us an obedient people, not because we are an obedient people, but because you are a faithful God who pursues us, even in our foolishness, even in our faithlessness. Father, show us that you're faithful once again. In Jesus' name we pray.